Father, thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to begin our Lord's Day clearing the cobwebs of a difficult world and of minds that are uh, occupied with so many things, Lord. It, It takes a lot to live in this world. Because of the curse given first to Adam, we live by the sweat of our brow. We uh, have to work hard. We have to, we have to fight against an earth that's continually trying to kill us because of uh, the, the, the effect of sin. And so, Lord, we ask you this day to clear our hearts and minds of all things except for Christ and for your truth, for your word. And while you are fully deserving of worship, we have a need to worship you as well. We have a longing to do so, and I pray that that would be our heart's cry this morning. Beginning even with our just study of how to study the Bible, I pray that you would turn our affections toward you and that we would think heavenward. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we left off talking about parables. And this is, we, we could spend a whole, like, a, like a, a semester on parables. I've spent so much of my time in school that I still think in semesters. I guess that's the way it's going to be. Um, you know, what semester are you going home? I'm hoping for the spring semester. Um, so parables are very interesting because they're, they're completely unique. Um, The most famous parables are those of Jesus, but there are parables in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 2 is a parable. Um, There's numbers of other parables. The parables of Jesus are very simply to reveal truth to some and conceal truth from most. And you recall that he kind of made a switch. He went from preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to once upon a time there was a. And there's now a a difference in teaching. These parables reveal truth to his followers, but they conceal it from his enemies. Now, I wish we had time to really go into these um, parables. They're a very interesting study, but I just want to restrict ourselves to properly interpreting them because they can be badly used and abused. And so we want to be careful not to do that if you're ever studying a parable. So just some thoughts about properly interpreting the parables. First of all, you have to determine the ordinary meaning of the story. That's the entire point. A a parable is a a story told in a setting that was familiar to the listener. And so you have to understand what that setting is and and you don't change it. You you don't uh, turn it into something that it's not. You determine the situation that prompted the parable. This is at least half of the work done in interpreting the parable. What's the situation? That will tell you so much. Um, I, I, I remember when our kids were little. I don't know who was doing this, and I, I have a vague memory of this, but we were you know, desperate for any sort, of, uh, any sort of entertainment that was biblical whatsoever. And all kinds of so-called ministries were putting out these cartoons and things with the life of Jesus. And it was just so weird. I'll never forget one. It was like Jesus was walking around in this fog, just kind of spouting parables around, you know, like and nobody's paying any attention. And whoever the characters are, the little kids who are somehow transported back in time. And it's like Jesus just kind of parachutes down and says, once upon a time, now let's go camping. Yeah, it's just the weirdest thing. That's not what he did. Every parable he told was in the context of a specific situation that he was in. People who he's talking to. You can, you can probably figure out a, a lot of what a parable means by who he's speaking to. 
That's huge. Who is the audience? So what's the situation in the Gospels? What was happening? What was the question that was asked? Very often these parables are in response to a question. So you get clues to what the purpose is. This is a major interpretive principle for parables. Uh, For example... It may be following an exhortation. Mark 13.33 Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And that's followed by the parable of the doorkeeper. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake." You also are working to determine the main truth illustrated by the parable. Generally speaking, a parable is teaching a single main truth. There may be certainly some sub-applications to it, but there's one main point. Uh, The parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and goes after the one that was lost? until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Well, Jesus explains this parable. He gives the point. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. But to support the main point, the details in the story help you. They help support spiritual truths. 99 sheep are those who have already repented. Sheep represents the lost sinner. The shepherd represents Jesus. But one of the clear things you have to be very careful about is not to take a parable and the details beyond what they were intended. Uh, the open country, the other details, they add color to the story. You can't just allegorize every single detail. Uh, remember the main point. Um, and if you read a commentator or read a, a uh, Bible study help, this simply states that X equals Y, that this part of a parable equals something else, then he better tell you why. And he better give you a context. We're, we're pretty safe saying the 99 sheep are those who have already repented. Sheep represent the lost sinner and the shepherd represents Jesus. We're safe on that ground. But when you start going into, well, the number 100 uh, is actually a, a number of completion in the Bible. And, and so this is Jesus completing the church. No, it's not. You have to be able to show how did you arrive at that. Then you also validate the main truth with supporting cross-references from more direct teachings, such as the epistles. In other words, if you arrive at a theological conclusion from a parable that's not supported anywhere else, then you're wrong. Um, I think those are the, the, the two most useful words you can, uh, you can say to yourself when I'm doing a Bible study. I'm wrong. Um, that's helpful, because one of the ways you can be accurate, you ready for this? I know this is an odd Bible study method. Cross off all the things that aren't true. And sometimes, like Sherlock Holmes, when you're left with one option, that's the one that's true. Here's a fifth thing to think about with interpreting parables. Note the actual or intended response of the hearers. This is important. 
Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus told the parable of two houses, one built on the rock and the other on the sand. What does that represent? It represents the choice to build your eternity on the rock of the gospel or the sand of your own righteousness. And he basically says that. What was the response, though? In verse 28, the, the crowds were astonished. They were shocked. This was important for us to note. And that was his closing illustration for the Sermon on the Mount. He he closed it with a note of doom. Uh, He closed it with a choice. He didn't try to soften the message of the gospel. He didn't try to soften the choice. He didn't try to say, well, uh, you know, but God loves you anyway. And even if you don't choose Christ, then that's okay. He'll be there for you. He didn't soften it. So that little parable is, it leaves you kind of, oh. So that's what the, the parables do. So just use those, those uh, principles to interpret parables. It's, it's helpful to you. And, and really, um, I, would, I think it's not uh, out of the realm of reasonableness to say that every parable of Jesus is related to the kingdom. And so if you're looking for what is the kingdom truth in this parable, generally you're going to be on the right track. What is this saying about the kingdom? Now let's get to the word that everybody's afraid of. Allegory. An allegory is a little different than the parable. An allegory is a narrative or a word picture which may or may not be based in real life with many parts pointing to spiritual realities. So in other words, a parable has one main point based in real life. An allegory in scripture, there are many points of comparison based in real life or maybe even in fiction. So... um, This is the main reason I'm hesitant to even bring up the word allegory. A passage is not allegorical just because you decide it is. An allegory is obviously an allegory. And so um, it's it's a hermeneutical error to say, well, this particular episode is allegorical in that it means something different than what it actually says. Now, the passage will be clear. Now, let me give you some sample allegories in Scripture. I think this will help you understand. And I know this is a lot. You can get the slides online. But sample allegories in Scripture. Psalm 23, 1 through 4. The Lord is the believer's shepherd. This is an allegory. It, it tells a story of a shepherd bringing a sheep into a green pasture and to, to, to quiet waters. Um, there's another allegory later on in, in the psalm, beginning in verse 5. The allegory of a guest and a host. And how what that story is about. So that's clearly an allegory with lots of the parts meaning uh, giving you a lot of points of comparison. Psalm 80, 8 through 16, is Israel is portrayed as a destroyed vine. And so it's, a, it's the story of a vine that's been destroyed. Proverbs 5, 15 through 20, marital fidelity is seen as a cistern, a, a water, a, a vat that holds water. And so that's allegorical. Proverbs 9, 1 through 6, wisdom is like a homemaker that makes a home. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, Israel as an unproductive vine. Ezekiel 13, 8 through 16, Israel's prophets are as collapsed walls. And so you can, you can see that the allegory is clear, that there is a, uh, there's the opportunity here to begin to uh, make a lot of comparisons. The collapsed wall, for example. 
Israel's prophets. Uh, if you look at the history of Israel's prophets, they were they were either faithful prophets who were knocked down by the faith, by the unfaithful, or they're unfaithful prophets um, that are seen to be false, and so they fall down. So there's there's a lot of points of comparison to make. <laughs> Ezekiel 17, Nebuchadnezzar in Egypt are two eagles and Judah is a vine. John 10, Jesus tells an allegory about himself that he is the good shepherd. John 15, Jesus is the vine. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, Christian workers are builders in the kingdom, that we build the kingdom, so to speak. Galatians 4, 21 through 31, Hagar and Sarah are two covenants. And then Ephesians 6, 11 through 17, the Christian spiritual defense as armor. So there's allegories throughout Scripture that are very helpful to us. I want to go back particularly to this example, Galatians 4, 21 through 31, because uh, Paul's use of Hagar and Sarah as two covenants This gets into an extremely important question of the New Testament, how it uses the Old Testament, the New Testament's use of the Old. Paul's use of Hagar and Sarah is an allegory. He even says it's an allegory. Now, this is often used, and the reason I'm going off track here for a minute, this is often used to supposedly prove that you can allegorize much of the Old Testament. Well, Paul did it. He allegorized Hagar and Sarah um, to mean two covenants. Here is a humongous difference. In using Hagar and Sarah as an allegory, Paul didn't erase the original intended meaning. He did not say that the story of Hagar and Sarah now changes, that there's, it's now different. That's a huge difference. Proponents of New Testament priorities say that the meaning of the Old Testament has literally changed. That's, that's a crazy thought to even say that out loud, right? What was the allegory Paul was telling? Well, I'll use today's language. He was using an Old Testament sermon illustration. That's what he was doing. He was not changing the meaning of the the story of Hagar and Sarah. He's an apostle writing Holy Spirit superintended work. This is the Holy Spirit using the Old Testament properly. Doesn't give us the right to turn the Old Testament into one giant resource of allegories. We don't get to do that. Uh, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is often held uh, to be an allegory. Um, in fact, arrogantly so. Um, but I, I've, read, I've read a number of covenant theologians that will openly say, if you think Song of Solomon is about human marriage, then you've missed the whole point of the glory of God. Human marriage is a reflection of the glory of God. I could prove that to you from many other places in Scripture. And it's this high academic view that if you think that God would stoop to, and what what a lot of commentators uh, say is to write something as mundane as a marriage manual, um, then then you have a low view of God. Song of Solomon is not a marriage manual. Song of Solomon is God's explanation of what marital love that he created to be is supposed to be. It's not an allegory. And by the way, you ask any Jew from 1000 BC on if uh, Song of Solomon is an allegory, they would say, no, it's about marriage. They would say that. It wasn't said to be an allegory until around the time of Christ. That was the first time anybody thought that might be the case. Um, And then you get to the Victorian era 
of uh, Bible interpretation and now all Christians are saying well it must be an allegory because God certainly would never talk about marriage and certainly wouldn't talk about sex um, because those things are evil and bad so uh, I, I just want to be very clear. Song of Solomon is not an allegory. It has lots of figures of speech, but it's not an allegory. As a matter of fact, it reflects an actual real story. It, it's not even a made-up story, which would be okay, but it's not a made-up story. It is a true story. It's a poem extolling human love and marriage the way God created it to be. So how do you, how do you deal with this? Because it's, it's kind of scary ground Two big rules. Don't interpret details that are not explained without a good cross-reference reason to do so. You, you don't get to just say, well, X means Y. That will, that will help you. And then determine the main point and interpret all of the allegory in relation to that main point. So all the parts always add up to the whole. They always point to the whole. They always point to the main point. So you won't encounter allegory a lot, and you can get some help with it with uh, with commentators and so forth but just know and and uh, i think this is a good rule of thumb whenever you're using any resource to help you and they make an assertion you need to you need to look for well what is the what are the steps that got you to that assertion what are the steps that made you say that x equals y if you can show because x equals y in galatians 4 in romans 3 and here as well then you have a stronger case does that make sense you don't get to just say well x equals y because i have a lot of letters before my name Uh, that doesn't that doesn't mean anything Okay, now we're going to get over to one of my favorite topics, prophecy. It's funny to me that we hit this right when we've begun our millennial uh, millennium series, but this is where we are. This is God's will, so we'll just do this. Um, you have to understand differences between millennial views, and if you come on Sunday nights, we're going to dive into this about a thousand feet deep. Um, but I'm just going to give you the overview here. Premillennialism, and we've done this uh, in our eschatology survey, but we'll do it again here. Premillennialism, Christ will return in the rapture at the end of this age. He will reign with his saints on earth for a thousand years. Um, premillennialists differ in their view of the relationship of the rapture to the tribulation, and we can, we can agree to disagree on that. That's fine. Um, here we hold to a pre-tribulational rapture because that's what the Bible teaches very clearly. Um, and so that's what we would hold to. There's lots of reasons for that, which I've gone into in other times. In the millennium, the nation Israel will experience the blessings of God uh, that he promised of land, their nationality, their king. The church today is not fulfilling the promises to Israel as a nation. Amillennialism, which just says there's no millennium. It says that the kingdom is now in existence between Christ's two advents. The, the kingdom that Christ is reigning, he's just doing so invisibly from heaven. He's ruling from heaven. He won't reign on earth for a thousand years, even though Revelation 20 has six references to a thousand year reign of Christ. The kingdom is either the church on earth now, which was Augustine's view and still the Roman Catholic Church's view, or it's the saints in heaven. Um, Older dispensational views uh, tended to go toward that, or older amillennial views, rather, tended to go toward that. B.B. Warfield um, said that the saints in heaven right now, they're the kingdom. There's no future reign of Christ on earth. The thousand years is a symbolic number, meaning a really long time. 
Do you know when um, people decided that the thousand years was a really long time and not a thousand years? In the year 1001. That's when they said, oh, it must be symbolic. But before that, many believed it was real. Even it was a thousand years. Even Augustine, who didn't hold to uh, an actual kingdom on earth, he said the thousand years was a thousand years. The promises to Israel about land, nationality, and king, according to amillennialists, are being fulfilled spiritually among the believers now. You know, I want to be careful about the word spiritually, because what they mean is invisibly. And I, spiritual and invisible are not the same thing. We are here physically together as an act of spirituality, right? So spiritual and invisible are not the same thing. God's promises to Israel were conditional. They've been transferred to the church because Israel failed to meet the condition of obedience to God. That's a pretty tough case to make because God's promises to Abraham were unconditional. And in fact, the way he uh, ratified that covenant was generally you, you had this ceremony where you cut up a bunch of animals and both people who were uh, who were part of this covenant were to pass through the animals uh, basically to say may I be like these chopped in half if I don't keep my end of the covenant Um, and in Genesis uh, I believe it's 15 uh, God said we're going to make that deal cut all the animals in half and then God put Abraham to sleep so that only God was the one who passed through so that God is the one who keeps that covenant so conditional promises to Israel that's a pretty tough case to make they would also say that Christ is ruling in heaven now where he's seated in the th- on the throne of David. Satan is bound between Christ's two comings. And that, that Satan is, uh, uh, is bound right now in terms of his ability to deceive the nations. So, I don't know, I can't imagine why anybody believes that, but that's just me. How about post-millennialism? Christ will come after the millennium. That the church is not the kingdom, but it will bring the kingdom in before Christ returns. There's a lot of variations to this. That there, we will create a utopic earth at some level by means of preaching the gospel. That Christ will not be on earth during the kingdom time. He returns after the kingdom time. The millennium is not a literal thousand years. They do abandon that as well because uh, because thousand years has passed. Um, the church and not Israel will receive the promises to Abraham and David. Here is again in a spiritual sense so just a little note here we don't settle questions of theology by referring to historical figures that's as John MacArthur famously has said history is not a hermeneutic it's not a bible study method it's not compiling well more people believe what I believe than, than the number of people who believe what you believe that doesn't make any difference whatsoever that being said just a couple of little notes here Clement of Alexandria who lived from AD 155 to 216 is probably the, the original father of amillennialism it was popularized by Augustine a couple of centuries later. Origen, in the 2nd century and part of the 3rd century, he was, he was the father of the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Origen has given much to the church, but he also gave us uh, the, the concept of allegorizing Scripture, which was not helpful. number of reformers 
were amillennial. John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, uh, Philip Melanchthon, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli. Why were they all amillennial? Because they were all Catholic priests. And they carried that over. And they also carried infant baptism over. Lots of things carried over. Uh, it, th- these guys didn't just like suddenly go, you know what, I'm ripping the priestly robes off and I'm starting a Protestant church across town. They were trying to do what? Reform the Catholic Church. That didn't happen and that's why we have Protestants and we're still named after people who are having a fit, uh, which is funny to me. But, uh, but there were a few. William Tyndale. Most Anabaptists were premillennial. Postmillennialism was taught first by Daniel Whidbey in 1638. It's held by Jonathan Edwards, Charles Wesley, Charles Hodge. In the early church, those who held to premillennialism, Clement of Rome, the Didache, which is basically the first systematic theology ever written in about 105, like maybe five to ten years after the death of the Gospel of John, or the death of John, rather, the Didache was written, it is premillennial. The Shepherd of Hermes. This is an important Christian writing about 140 AD. It's it's premillennial. Barnabas, Polycarp, Ignatius, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Cyprian, many others were premillennial. So if you're if you're if we're using the era and the preponderance of believers in any of the three systems, I do have to say premillennialism wins both on the oldest and the most supported view. Why would Polycarp be premillennial? Because his teacher was the Apostle John, the ultimate premillennialist. He, he witnessed everything that gave us the book of Revelation. So you might ask, well, how do, they, how do, how do we arrive at these views? Well, and we'll spend a lot of time on this on Sunday night, so I won't belabor the point now. The hermeneutics of the two views... Uh, postmillennialism has its own issues. I'm going to focus on the, the popular one. Uh, amillennialism, way more popular in American evangelicalism now than, than premillennialism. Uh, we are in the minority, so just, that's just the way it is. But the hermeneutics of amillennialism, the kingdom is in the church at some level. Um, they, they teach the unity of the people of God. And boy, that sounds good, but what they mean by that is that Israel and the church have become indistinct. Um, that's, that's what they mean by unity. Uh, that would be the same as saying that my wife and I are indistinct. We're not two people. We're just one person. Israel and the church are interchangeable. And, and we have to be vague about that because different views of amillennialism have different varieties of that because nobody can explain it uh, in a way that makes you know consistent sense. The promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church. Uh, some say Israel is the church. Some say that the church has become the new Israel. There's lots of different ways of phrasing this. Here's that word again. You have the spiritualizing of prophecy, seeing a a so-called spiritual sense to literal prophecy. Uh, For example, the the prophecy in Isaiah 6 through 9 that ferocious animals will be tame actually refers to Saul of Tarsus, who was changed from a vicious hater of the church to a gentle follower of Christ. That's pretty inconsistent considering that the earlier part of Isaiah 11 that a king will come, the, the root and branch of Jesse, they take that literally. You can't just decide, oops, we're switching over to metaphorical now. The hermeneutic system of amillennialism brings a set of belief to scripture before 
it's ever opened. So just just be aware of that. When you're speaking to somebody, a, a brother and sister who's millennial, ask them how they arrived at this conclusion from Scripture. And if they quote John Calvin, you say, I didn't ask you what John Calvin said. I want to know how you get this from Scripture. Because you're gonna, they're going to hit a wall. They, they can't do it. Premillennialism. We use the same hermeneutic from Genesis to Revelation. It's always the same. A normal grammatical interpretation. Israel will be in the land with a king. Why do we believe that? Because the Bible says Israel will be in the land with a king. Israel and the church are two distinct but highly related programs of God. And, and I've been told in my face, <clears throat> are you some sort of spiritual racist? And what do you mean? That that Israel and the church that you're like you want to keep them distinct that you're you're like a segregationist I was like no uh, how, why would you say that but that's what they're taught and that's a very radical view can I tell you this nobody loves Jews more than premillennialists I guarantee you you know how many uh, you know how many messianic Jewish ministries there are that are amillennial zero they're all premillennial because they take scripture at face value and they're waiting for a coming king. So, yes, Israel and the church are two distinct but highly related programs of God. My wife is highly related to me, but she's distinct. And I'm so glad, men, aren't we glad that women aren't just like men? That's, that's uh, yes, amen and, and hallelujah for all that. I don't know why that's so difficult to understand. Israel and the church are distinct, highly related. And yeah, in the final state, the distinctions will probably be a little more blurred. But uh, read Revelation 21. What are the gates of New Jerusalem named after? The tribes of Israel. Pretty clear. We believe in consistency and interpretation across all scripture. And I love this quote uh, from a theologian named Millard Erickson in his Systematic Theology. And I, I love this quote because he doesn't agree with us on a lot of things. But here is his assessment of all the millennium uh, systems of belief. There are no biblical passages with which premillennialism cannot cope or which it cannot adequately explain. On the other hand, the references to two resurrections in Revelation 20 give amillennialists difficulty. Their explanation that we have here, different, two different types of resurrection or two spiritual resurrections, strain the usual principles of hermeneutics. Nor is the premillennialist interpretation based on only one passage in the Bible. And he doesn't agree with us on a lot of things, but his assessment is accurate. That there isn't a single verse in Scripture that we have to go, oh boy, I I was hoping you wouldn't bring that one up. Not one. Okay, I'm going to shift gears to something much more mundane, and then we have uh, time for a few questions if you you want to. Um, If you've been going through and doing your assignments here, you're at the point now where you're starting to do uh, a study synthesis. And so, uh, just a reminder, the passage that we've been using as our example, we haven't been back to it in a while, but um, our passage, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So what you're doing now is you're evaluating and categorizing your observations. And if you remember for Ephesians 4, we, we came up with 75 observations. 
And so you're putting them together. We've we've gone through all the other processes together in in the past weeks. We've uh, we've synthesized. We've we've found places where we're uh, we're repeating ourselves and maybe put them all together. Now, what you what you do is you take those observations that you synthesize down to some interpretations. Interpretations come when a lot of your observations all agree with each other. Then that gives you an interpretation. Now, I've boiled it down to three major categories or statements from the 75 or so that we started with um, from Ephesians 4. So here are the three major observations. And this is the synthesis of 75 down to some bigger uh, concepts down to just the, the very meatiest parts. Three major observations. God requires that we rid ourselves of internal sinful attitudes and external sinful actions toward other believers. The second major observation, God requires that we put on godly internal attitudes and external actions toward other believers, and we are to forgive others with the standard being how God has forgiven us. Now, some of the questions asked, well, how do you interpret the passage? Taking all your observations, synthesizing them down to some good big categories, synthesizing them down to, for example, these three major observations... Can you make one summary statement now from these three major observations? If you can, that is your interpretation of the text. And here it is. I've, summar- I've synthesized down to one summary statement, or some would call an exegetical proposition. This is it. What is inside matters to God and determines our actions. That's what Ephesians 4.31 and 32 is about. But that wasn't based on just a cursory reading. That was based on going through the hard work of making the observations. Um, let me put it to you this way, because I know that interpreting the text of Scripture is a scary thought. Um, we got to talk about this a lot at, at Women's Retreat. We'll do it again at uh, Men's Retreat here in a few weeks. I know it's a scary thought, but the simple test for yourself is can I take my interpretation of this passage and can I reverse engineer it can I deconstruct it back to the little bitty parts that got me there can I, can I look back over the road that got me there um, you don't ever want to be guilty of the typical evangelical bible study read a verse what do you think this means you just skipped hours of work we don't care what we think it means what does the text say so a good way to, to check yourself is to check your logic. What is inside matters and determines our actions. Okay, work your way backwards all the way to your observations to check yourself. And if you feel like you've made a good case, then stick with the case. Um, and that's okay. Even more boringly, assignment number four which is due with your final project. Um, <clears throat> and this, whenever we finish that, I know I'm going slow through, uh, through this Module 7, but I wanted to take my time through it. Um, you're going to evaluate, categorize your best observations. You're forming an interpretive summary statement, like what is inside matters to God and determines our actions. You use resources like commentaries to answer whatever questions you've had, and then maybe use your resources to add any insights to your conclusions and correct faulty interpretations. And that's you, you'll notice something as we've been going through this. I know we're going slowly, but we're pointedly avoiding looking at other people's thoughts on the passage you're studying. 
you want to avoid that as long as possible because once uh, we, we talked about this at Women's Retreat this weekend, um, once something gets in your head, it's hard to get it out. So if I said right now, picture a pink monkey running across your brain, all of you had the pink monkey just run across it. That's what reading a commentary does. It takes away all of your creativity. It takes away all of your um, ability to think through that text. Um, And not completely, but it's just a little more of a pure uh, approach to just go to the text itself. Make your observations. And yes, use definitions. And if you're using resources to find definitions in cultural contexts and things like that, it's still not interpreting the text for you. And some commentaries, especially if they're smaller ones that are more condensed, right up front, it'll say Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 means this. Uh oh, now you have to decide whether your observations match their conclusions. No, you want to decide whether your observations match your conclusions. That's a purer form of Bible study. Then you go back, and if five godly, scholarly men all say anybody who says what is inside matters to God and determines our actions is wrong because of these 19,000 reasons, then you go, okay, well, I need to go back and reevaluate. But if you get some flavor of that, that's the checking principle, as we used to call it, that, that helps you understand that you've made a good study process and that you've gone through it well and you can have confidence in it. Um, we had a fun little Q&A yesterday afternoon, and one of the questions uh, was... You know, I'm I'm afraid to get this wrong. I'm afraid that I'll interpret the, the scripture wrong. And and um, in an opportunity to be a little lighthearted, you know, think about think about my position. If I get it wrong, I'm telling a whole bunch of other people that what is wrong is right. That's why James three one says, "Not many of you should be teachers." Um, I my knees knock sometimes when I'm preaching, not because I'm nervous about being in front of people, but I just want to make sure is this correct. And I want to have that humility. So um, all that is to say that if you go through an honest, genuine study process and you miss it by a little bit and you don't quite hit it and others have to correct you, that's okay. You're not going to get a knock on the door from the International Bible Study Service. Say, I'm sorry, you missed Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Please turn around. You have the right to remain silent. No. Go through the process over and over again and, and even have theological discussions with yourself and with, with other... You know, I know this is weird but I know pastors that talk to their commentaries. Look, Dr. Walford, what were you thinking here? I don't understand. And, and have a conversation with your sources. And that's fine. That's a little nerdy, but uh, I'm afraid that I shouldn't have revealed that. <laughs> but go through the process. Don't worry. You're not gonna, nobody's grading it. Well, in, in, here they are. Uh, so Jay will, be, Jay will be nice to you. But go through the process. Nobody's, and then do it again and do it again and do it again. So there is your uh, assignment. And we have time. We have about five minutes or so that we could take a few questions specific to this topic. And um, uh, then we can do other stuff if you want. Yeah.